0: Your default setting on any investment should be, look, if it doesn't work, I can just hold it. So if you buy Rio Tinto, which is spewing out cash, has mines all over the world, and no matter what goes forward, it kind of looks like a world that's going to use commodities because we're going to be trying to make solar panels, whether they really work, and windmills, whether they really work, and electric cars, whether we can really use them. And we're gonna, we got an energy crisis. We're gonna start trying to figure out ways to solve that. So the commodities looks like a potential multi-decade run to me. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, Here's your host, Tyler Chesser.
1: Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser, I'm so thankful to have you here and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with Dave Collum today. Today's episode is so good because you are going to understand that there's this little thing called mass psychosis and propaganda that is trying to give you or it's successfully giving you smoke and mirrors so that you truly don't understand the truth about the world today, about how things work about how things are playing out underneath the surface. And today's about getting closer to the truth. And ultimately as an investor, as a human being, I think you would want to have a desire to know the truth, but as an investor, it's critical. And kind of wrap up this episode by saying that if you don't understand that the rug can be pulled out from under you, if you don't understand the truth, then that could be your biggest risk. So today is all about understanding the hidden risks that you are encountering that you may or may not even be aware of or you may have never considered. I wanna also let you know that there may be times in this episode today where you feel triggered or offended. By the way, we talked about being unoffendable recently on this podcast. So if you haven't listened to that solo episode, I wanna invite you to go ahead and do that immediately because that's going to support you in not only listening to a conversation like today, but across all different things in your life. Because you know what? I think that is a superpower and I will leave it at that. But today's episode is a game changer. And I wanna tell you a little bit about Dave Collum. He is a professor at Cornell University and what I would describe as a leading thinker on markets and the larger world around us. You'll learn more about sort of how he became that and how he's such a dynamic individual. There's also a lot of clues in terms of the way that he learns, the way that he teaches and the way that he has continued to grow and make sense of the world around us. And I think those are huge takeaways that you're going to get from this episode today. And Elevate Podcast, by the way, is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser. I'm a professional real estate investor and entrepreneur. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. I have to tell you, I think I'm successful in that today. And if you can understand the complexity of this discussion and try to decode a lot of the different moving parts of what we talked about, I think you're going to get a step ahead. I think you will get a competitive advantage as a result of engaging in this episode. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. I want to invite you to pay the fee. The fee is to share this episode with a friend, all you have to do is grab the link, post it on social media, send it in a text message, email, whatever you need to do to pay it forward. I just want to thank you so much for doing that. If you've already done that in the past, Thank you so much. It really means the world to me. It means the world to us and our team because we're, we're continuing to put our heart and soul into providing massive value for you and to you. And uh, so if you can share this, we would really appreciate that. It's extremely helpful for us. And also give us a rating, review, or subscribe or follow Elevate Podcast, whether you watch our podcasts on YouTube or whether you listen to them on any podcast platform. A rating and review and subscribing those are all very helpful things. And by the way, we're going to continue to bring unbelievable people like Dave Collum on the podcast. We're going to continue to bring tremendous resources for you in the topics of mindset mind expansion and personal development for you as a real estate investor because you know what we have tactics we have strategies we have tools tips and of course we do talk about that stuff but it ultimately comes down to the way that your mind is interacting with the world around you so that you can capture opportunities so that you can understand risk so that you can understand upside so that you can understand the many different moving parts that are impacting your investments that are impacting the pathway towards your goals so I just hope that you enjoy this so much. I think you will. And without further ado, please enjoy this phenomenal conversation with Dave Collum. Dave Collum, welcome to Elevate, my friend. How you doing?
0: Hey, I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Honored to be here.
1: Well, thank you so much, man. Uh, First time I I heard you speak was in New Orleans and I was like, man, we got this year or last year. That was this year. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we got to get this guy on the podcast because first of all, he's ruffling feathers, which I think we need more people to be ruffling feathers. I mean, I think too many people are tiptoeing around people's feelings and they're not telling the truth. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you before we dive into that. Why don't you describe a little bit about sort of your background, your upbringing, sort of what brought you to where you are today?
0: I have an odd background where I seem to jump around quite a bit for a long time. And that is in high school, I was, you know, I was an OK student, but not a great student. Went off to Cornell, which you say, well, you could have been pretty, you must have been pretty good. No, actually, I got it through the back door. And then I got serious after drug, sex, rock and roll in high school. And I just I really worked hard. And as a genetics major, I was heading to med school. And instead, I ended up going off to grad school in organic chemistry, which was a bit of a Hail Mary. Got lucky there, like you know, miracle on ice, 1980 hockey went over Russia, level lucky. And so by the end of my second year of grad school, I found myself getting job offers, getting job interview offers. And so I ended up going back to Cornell, that was at Columbia, at the ripe old age of 25. And then I I started doing what I was trained to do in graduate school. And then during the interviews, I decided I was going to switch fields. So a couple of years in, I switched from how do you make molecules, to how do you understand things. And so uh, that turned out to be a near-death experience, because it wasn't the most fundable-looking field. And then over time, I, I sort of cracked the nut, and 40 years of straight funding and putting some spectacular wins. So, so in any event, it was a complex field that I entered, so that was, uh, I, I have a real affinity for complexity, apparently. In the late, well, mid 90s, maybe even early 90s, now I think of it, I got interested in markets as a boomer with money, right? I decided, okay, I got to start paying attention. Had done really well, but, you know, that was pouring water off a boot. I was in long bonds till the 87 crash. And the crash triggered a conversation with a colleague who said, you should get into stocks. And so I did. And then I became a student of the markets and in 99. I jumped out. So that was well-timed. And the miraculously well-timed thing is I jumped into gold. And so I was buying gold when someone said, oh, it's easy, it was so cheap. And I go, there's about five of us who wanted it, right? There was just nobody. And so you think that's easy to buy when there's no one who everyone thinks you're psychotic did really well through the next decade owning gold and energy. And the energy was just an inflation hedge, but it turned out to be the big boom of the energy s- system. And so my best decade graded on a curve, which is how I would do relative to benchmarks, was the knots. So while people were getting beat up, I compounded 13% a year or something. So that was fun. The next decade, I completely missed the Fed printing trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars. I, I actually saw the-, the crash coming, the big problem, and uh, I wrote about it, and actually in 02. And then I told my class in 07 that the banks were about to collapse in March of 07. And that was when there were just tiny little flickers. But I picked up on a couple of threads that said the credit markets were breaking. There was a thing called a market ABX index, which is a derivative index. And it just left par and started dropping. And, and there was a blogger named Tontz, she kept saying, oh, man, there's upheaval going on underneath the surface in the credit markets. And I picked up on that and, and I actually shorted it, which I, I've only done twice in my life. One is off the 99 bubble and the other is then. And so I survived that. But the next decade was relative to the curve, the worst decade, because while everyone partied like it was 1999, I uh, I compounded 4% a year. And so so I missed the big road rage. Where are we at now? Well, I think we're the top of the most colossal bubble in history. And it's so broadly based. And I think we've got so much fuel in the system to burn off. So I am was talking about, oh, when the Fed quits, the markets are going to rally, And then I'll, I think we got 10, 15 years of pain. So I'm, I'm a perma bear. I'm, I'm like a super bear. I, I think uh, I view the best model, something like the US from 6781 or the Nikkei from 1989 to the present. The Nikkei didn't even plumb a bottom for 23 years. It just kept going down for 23 years. So here's one for you. If you own the market 1906 at the market peak and you do an inflation adjusted S&P, you recovered after some number of years. The metric I like is when did you last touch that price? So your 1906 price, when did you last touch that price? Let's hope we don't touch it again. But And the answer is 1981. 75 years of treading water. All you got was dividends minus taxes, minus fees. You made nothing. Peak to trough is not a good trip. So I think we've had 40 years of e-bounces that are going to go away. I think those are consequence. Here's my synopsis of the bear case right here. Early 1980s, Russia was broke. The Soviet Union was collapsing, took almost a decade, but they were breaking down. So they flooded the world with resources, as did other countries. China, literally coming out of the the dark ages, literally had 38,000 foreign reserves in their banking system. They were broke. They needed cash. And so they sold labor like there was no tomorrow, right? The U.S., Interest rates went from 16 to essentially zero over the next 40 years, and that propels equity prices. The uh, demographics were spectacular. The boomers were entering the workforce in 1980-ish, and for the next 40 years, they were running full throttle. And now that demographics has flipped. And so, so the question is, how much that's going to repeat? And the answer is none. And I think that the interest rates dropping for 40 straight years, and it's almost linear. I mean, it's, it's a strangely linear thing. It's almost like someone said, look, let's just, just work it. Let's just take it down steadily. I think that's what allowed ourselves to not only go from super low valuations to super high valuations, which I have at about right now at about 100% overvalued. By 25 metrics, it's not a PE ratio thing. 25 metrics, they all point to about 100% overvalued. So we've taken off some of the froth. We got another factor or two to go to get to fair value. So if we damage the system and, and everyone gets really depressed, we blow the system up. If we go below fair value, we're going to be cheaper. I think the V-bounces were all a consequence of luxurious monetary policy and dropping rates. And, and I think the age of monetary policy may be over. I think the age of V-bounces may be over. Um, if it took the EK 23 years to plumb the low, let's hope that was the low, then you know there's no reason we can't have the same problem.
1: Sorry. Man, there's a lot there, but I have to say uh, I, I appreciate your perspective, and and it's, it is interesting just kind of going back to the beginning. It's you, you went from making molecules to understanding tremendous complexity and making sense of that, and to be able to project where that's going, I think is a super valuable takeaway. But when you think about talking about the age of monetary policy may be over, I mean one one of the kind of functions of that is you're anticipating what governments may or may not do here over the next ten to fifteen years, or what they you know what tools they may or may not have the leverage to be able to utilize that they did perhaps over the past 20 years. So it sounds like you're making some assumptions there, which is built into that 10 to 15 years of pain. Is that is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, I think we finally have discovered that if you use profoundly loose monetary standards for a very long time, inflation will eventually show up. So I think the missing toolbox, you're right. I'm I'm assuming that there will not be responses that we've had for 40 years is inflation. So it's conceivable they'll say, screw the inflation. And as a consequence, just say, look, we're going to solve the problems the old-fashioned way. But in case People are not paying attention. Inflation is very destructive. And so I remember, oh, two years ago, you would talk to people and they go, oh, I hope we have inflation. I can uh, that'll destroy the debt I have, the mortgage on my house. I go, how's that working out for you now? I don't. Is your mortgage payment smaller? Do you have the cash flow from your salary minus all the very expensive food and stuff? Left to pay that mortgage any easier? Is, is there I don't see on Twitter guys going, this is great. It's burning down my mortgage. It's not. Your mortgage hasn't gone away. Is your salary kept up with inflation? Right. And then when you start having to rebudget, so they say the average bloke makes, I don't know, 60K a year now and has 400 hours in the bank to, to handle a, an appliance that breaks, right? Which is not enough now. So they have to go into debt to do anything. That's the average median person. They just got last year a pay deduction by inflation of a but yeah, let's pretend it's eight and a half percent. No one believes those numbers, but let's pretend it's eight and a half. I just asked a contractor, if you're bidding a house a year from now, how much would he add to account for rising wages and materials? He said 30 percent. My brother is an accountant and, and keeps track of everything. He has spreadsheets for everything. I don't know why he's wealthy, but he does. And he said that his year-over-year food prices went up 41 percent. I post that on Twitter. Here's the funny part. I just said, my brother's account he manages everything. This is the number he got. So that's not the most exciting tweet. You know, Twitter, are you on Twitter? I don't even know. You should reach out to me and tell me where.
1: At the Tyler uh, Chesser. We should definitely connect there. I've okay. I've been taking a look at your Twitter and it's definitely worth taking a look at. So we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes is where the listeners can find you there as well.
0: So I got 17,000 likes. You know, somehow that hit a nerve, right? That was a, a dry tweet. And I asked Jimmy Iorio, who is in New Orleans, as you recall, he says his restaurant's about 25%. So there's a conservative number. So let's assume the average bloke lost 10% due to inflation. That's a pay cut of $6,000. So you can't pay fewer taxes. You still got to eat. You still got to pay your energy bill. What part of your world are you going to take that 6K from?
1: Right. Can I make a quick comment on that? Because what you're talking about is, well, yeah, the CPI says 8.1 or whatever. But this kind of goes back to, well, it actually goes to a a future comment that I wanted to touch on with you is just the fakeness of everything out there. The reporting of this data is so manipulated. And so to your point, you know, a lot of people would say that inflation is probably more like 15 to 20 percent when you bake in all of these different factors. And so being aware of that is a critical function, because if you just look at things at face value, you. are totally misled everywhere you look
0: well so the inflation numbers started getting faked they say it goes back to johnson when someone came in with numbers in like he threw them literally in his face and said give me better ones right and so then along comes the Boskin commission who might have had their hearts in the right place but they said well we're not accounting for all the cool things like for example you know i think cars are better uh, not just they have more bells and whistles, but I think they are better. Right? You know, they don't rust out like they used to, and things like that. So there's something about now. There's a hidden inflation in which don't accounts for. One is uh, that hidden inflation is the rate of depreciation. So forget the cars for the time being. You buy. A blender in 1940, it's still running. You buy a blender in 1990, it's gone. And you can make arguments that depreciation rates are as much as 20-fold on a cost per use basis. There's a massive hidden inflation there. So your house used to be filled with wealth, right? Appliances that made your life better for many, many years. Now it's filled with crap. It's a drag on you, right? Your microwave's going to go. You're going to lose appliances. I I lost several this year. And so there's that hidden inflation. The other thing that's funny, and I've never seen anyone talk about this, there's two adjustments the Fed does. They sound absurd. One is they adjust hedonically, which the origin of that word is pleasure. So some economists was having fun that day when they named it that. But they hedonically adjust it because they say, well, the new blender is actually cheaper because it has more buttons, right? That's the part that's insincere, right? Because more buttons, but a plastic piece of crap. But they hedonically adjust it. You know, intermittent windshield wipers is a common citation. You didn't have those before. The car is better. You had a better radio, maybe, you know, that sort of thing. But there's another thing called substitution where they say, well, when inflation shows up and the price of beef goes up, you'll switch to chicken. You know, OK, so at some point it gets real expensive. You want worms and grubs and rodents. What That becomes free, right? But here's the funny thing. Let's say the price of beef is twice as much as the price of chicken. The free market is saying it is twice as better. So it should be hedonically adjusted back. And so the hedonics and substitution ought to precisely cancel at some level. Hedonics should cancel substitution. Substitution should not exist.
1: So I think one of the big purposes of this conversation with you is honestly is getting to the truth and making sense of reality because there's smoke and mirrors left and right. But I do want to go back to your comments regarding where you're seeing sort of this bubble. You mentioned the most colossal bubble in history is where we're at the top of that bubble. Currently, you're projecting 10 to 15 years of pain. And you're also saying that you believe in general assets across the board are 100 percent overvalued. So talk to me a little bit more in depth about what you're actually projecting here over the next 10 to 15 years, and how does that impact folks that are looking to protect wealth and somehow grow in this type of endeavor or in this type of circumstances?
0: Well, it might actually be a function of of demographics, where in the sense that the boomers sort of drove the bubble up with their investing, now they're going to drive the bubble back down due to the fact that they're producing nothing and drawing. So we're about to face an economy where fewer people are providing goods and services to more people. And that's not a good situation. There are claims out there by demographic legends that the world is actually about to face a demographic collapse. Not just a small drift, a collapse. And one day I was listening to an Elon Musk interview. So I read a whole book on that. I was listening to Elon Musk and they were joking around. And and someone said, what's the most important problem mankind faces right now? And he says, oh, population collapse. And they started laughing at him. They thought he was joking. He said, no, I'm not just talking drop. He said, collapse. You look at the replacement rate. In the U.S., it's like 1.7. Replacement's 2.2. China's like 1.3 or 1.4. you All over the world, the replacement rates are all wrong. And one thing about demographics is... They're already born. We kind of know what's coming. You can't create 20 year olds out of whole cloth.
1: Um <laughs> at least we don't think and, so yet, right?
0: Yeah, we might get there. And there is a demographer out there named Peter Zihan who says that this is going to contribute greatly to the tearing apart of globalism. Now, if you don't think globalism is at risk now, because what COVID, Ukraine war, there's a lot of things making that friendly global supply chain look at risk. The banking system is locking countries out of it. This is a real problem. So, so, I think there's that. The bubble is, I think, is plain as the nose on your face. Interest rates are at all time lows. They're not anymore. They have started the march up, which is scared the crap out of people. But they were at five thousand year lows. They'd never been this low. Oh, a great book by the way. Read um, "The Price of Time" by Edward Chancellor, who's a legend of market history. Right? He's famous. And I thought it was going to be review because I've read so much about so many bubbles and you know, etc. But this book was good. And there's a line. In there that keeps popping up, and and he basically says every single time in history that someone has forced rates low, ends in tragedy. Every single one. Now, tell me, we haven't forced rates low for a very long time, and so Chancellor believes that history shows that without fail, this will end in tragedy. And, and he then tells some very, very entertaining stories about history of markets too. So it's not just tulip bubbles. And so there's that. So right now, again, markets two x overvalued. That's potentially at least right two x overvalued. In New Orleans, I was on a panel. And I think BookFar got to an important point on this panel where the three phases of a bear market, which most people say, okay, they'll all occur in about a year. And I go, no, that's the V-bounce. The phases are first you take off the froth, then you start damaging the economy. You start taking off profit margins, which are all-time highs. And that's in part the tech world. But profit margins are mean regressing. When there's a big profit margin, someone comes in and tries to grab it. And so there'll be another company that comes along that drives down that price. And uh, the third phase is just when you you start finding dead corpses and blood in the streets and stuff like that. That phase people think of as the V, the bottom of the V. Oh, yeah, everyone was selling in 09. No, that's when the Nikkei sitting there around 2012 after 30 years of nothingness. And it slowly but surely starts curling back up. And uh, the US in 67 to 81, inflation adjusted, lost 75%. You not only lost 75%, you spent 14 years losing it. Time is your enemy. That's why Chancellor's Price of Time title is important. He's talking about time as the variable. Many people don't include time because V bounces. Time's not an issue. Okay, it's the price. It goes down two years later. It went where it went. But time is not a big parameter. Now, I will give you a time argument that people are missing. I had colleagues in my office when it was tanking earlier in the year saying, oh, you know what's happening and what do I do? I said, look, here's the deal. If I told you a year and a half ago, you were not going to make any money for a year and a half, would you have shit your pants? And they go, no. And I go, well, that's what you just did. But the other message is we burn off literally a year and a half of froth. One could argue the froth goes back five or six. One can argue then the damage really starts. And so, yes, well, that's just the froth. I make the case, I think it's a compelling case. If you look at price, if you look at valuation metrics, valuation left historical fair value. It sort of lifted off all the historical metrics. It's always a price over some metric that ought to follow price, GDP, earnings, revenue, you name it, whatever. All the metrics show that price to whatever left orbit in 1994. We have been hovering above fair value, varying degrees of, of bubble down to some regression, but above fair value with the exception of about one month since 1994. Oh, that would be the bottom of 08, 09. It spent about a month below fair value. I did it with Spitznagel. He said, that's exactly right. Grantham is out there talking about it, saying, yeah, we were slightly below fair value for a very brief time in 09, spring of 09.
1: And then the artificially low interest rate environment was then prolonged for trillions, years. and
0: Trillions and trillions. And somehow, if you think, given the 5,000 year history of capitalism, if you think you can create money from thin air. And not pay a price for that. You gotta read some more books. You gotta, you gotta dig in.
1: So, what type of tragedy are you actually projecting? I mean, over five to six years, the froth being sort of taken out of the environment. What happens thereafter?
0: Well, so Paul has promised to hurt us. So the guys who think Paul's gonna pivot. I think if they're listening to everything he says, they're not paying attention because because he's saying we're not even thinking about stopping. He says It's going to cause pain. Don't hear Fed Chairman say pain very often,
1: right? But in fairness, Um, at one point he said, I'm not thinking about thinking about raising interest rates, which was about two years ago.
0: Right, right, because he wasn't. That's the problem. They should have been trying to tick the rates back up over the last eight years. Yellen blew it. Bernanke blew it. They had opportunities where the economy maybe wasn't in perfect shape it was sluggish, but they could have grabbed some of that back. They chose to just say, oh, no, let's wait and see. And they just they let the fuel and the bomb build up. And so I think there's so much unspent fuel. And so you'll see. So we're not even close. We're seeing a little bit of the beginning of the problem. Like, for example, when the shit hits the fan, you start th- seeing things like the FTX collapse. And the FTX, by the way, is, I think, a geopolitical story, not a financial story, not a Bitcoin story. And and it turns out that Cahotas, who's a pretty good friend, pointed out that there's a bank that has been funding all these crypto operations, which are what? $2 trillion, right? We created $2 trillion of perceived money in a decade and a half. And you can say, well, that's not really money. I go, well, if you are a 500 millionaire with Bitcoin, do you think you're spending like you don't have that Bitcoin? No, you're buying yachts and stuff like that. So that that is, that is real money. If I had 500 million in treasuries, I would consider that money. Treasuries are money. So what happens? Well, FTX blows up. And behind the scenes, it turns out the bank with uh, something like 14 billion in assets and a trillion in liabilities out there. And it's crashing right now. I think it's called Starlight or something. And remember that long-term capital management blew up when a Russian bond default occurred. So some butterfly can flap its wings on the other side of the world and cause problems, right? It's an emergent system at that point. So we don't know what's going to happen. Now, there will be Enrons and Tyco's and Madoffs. They will all start showing up because, as you said, this sort of economy that's not based on stuff. I'm not going to pick on you, but how many podcasters can the world support, right? And and you're all battling for eyeballs. And I give you credit for filling a void that was previously filled by media mega companies. And they've completely failed. And so the podcasters have jumped in and said, we will provide a better product. But I'm not sure how big that universe is. And so I think there's going to be a washout of podcasters. I don't think you all can make money podcasting. I've never asked anyone to tell me really how they make money. But I talked to one who I know well at New Orleans. He said he's hoping to clear 2 million this year. And I'm going where in this system, you know, and then there's companies like Facebook and Twitter and stuff. Ed. These are not General Motors and Ford Motor and, and U.S. Steel and, and Alcoa. There's something translucent about them. There's something non-wealthy about them. They serve a purpose.
1: In other words, you're just seeing a tremendous amount of fat or non-productive or non-value generating activity yeah. in the environment yeah. that will be washed out.
0: Yeah. And something like Amazon, I see the purpose of it. Amazon is not a pioneering company. And you go, how can you say that? Well, it turns out that the Sears robot catalog was the prototype. And if you go back to the turn of the century, people were buying their stuff, country stores, buying bags of flour and taking nails out of a barrel. And the Sears robot catalog comes and all of a sudden you can order from across the country and they will ship on a train, you know, 10,000 items. And And that was Amazon. Amazon is bigger and it's faster. But Sears was was profound. And there's a great book by Robert Gordon, and I can't remember the exact title, but it's something about the creation and destruction of wealth. It's it's, it's one of these uh, sort of, I occasionally read a book where it changes my worldview, not just fills in details. That Robert Gordon did that. The other one that did that was um, a book I read this year called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, which is about mass movements. And if, if you had noticed, the world is filled with mass movements right now. And Hoffer wrote this in '53. It's a very short book. It's a very easy read. And you're reading it and you're going, there it is right there. There's one right there. You're just, all of a sudden, it's like someone wrote about, you know, the um, invasion of the body snatchers. You're going, oh, there's another right there. Oh my God, he's possessed, right? It changed my worldview of what I was seeing.
1: we'll we'll put links in the show notes of those books, and I'm gonna check those out myself as well. And in addition to the price of time book that you mentioned earlier, but actually that brings up a a topic that I did want to discuss with you. And it's something that I've been observing over the past few years. And I think anybody who wants to get to truth has been observing this as well. And it's really propaganda. And frankly, Uh, what, what, what I believe is mass psychosis. And I think if you look around and if you get out of the, the fog or you're you're a fish and you're in water and you realize that you're actually in water, there is a tremendous amount of mass psychosis going on. And it comes back to the political climate, the geopolitical stuff. It goes back to the economic landscape that we find ourselves in and so some of these projections that you're speaking to. But talk to me a little bit about that. And also, how do you sort of get out of this mass psychosis and understand what's being done to you? Because there's fake information all around you is Everywhere. fake news, Everywhere. fake teachers, fake whatever. I mean, everything and fake money. I mean, frankly, r- remaining or gaining a critical thinker mindset as a result of that. I mean, do you have any comments on that?
0: Yeah, I, I've obsessed over it actually. And so one of the things I did is I started reading about propaganda. So I went back and read Edward Bernays, 1926 treatise on propaganda he basically propaganda's been around since civilization but Bernays kind of codified the thing or in some way he uh, he laid it all out and told about how you sell cigarettes to women and things like that how do you, how do you do it he kept mentioning that politicians had not yet figured this out I'm going well they caught up they, they figured that one out. I read some of Hannah Arendt's work. She writes about totalitarianism with a heavy emphasis on the Holocaust. And um, it's tough reading. I don't recommend Hannah Arendt's book. To, you got you to be committed to get through an Arendt book. With the birth of the internet, which I always been saying for a very long time, it's democracy's greatest hope and worst enemy. I sincerely fear that, that we've lost that. And that the internet now is that the bad guys have figured out how to use the internet. And, and it showed up in COVID, for example. So the COVID story, you might have listeners who don't believe this, but the COVID story is a big scam. People did die. There's no question it's a serious problem. But they did stuff that's surfacing now that that shows you how bad these people are, how bad Fauci is. Fauci, I call Fauci a mass murderer, not metaphorically. I call him a mass murderer. Not from what he did during COVID, which I would add that. But through his entire 30-year life, I think he got many thousands of deaths. And you want to read about that, read... The real Anthony Fauci by Kennedy who has been bird dogging him for 30 years. And it's a horror story. And so now what's appalling is that they've been caught with their narrative being baloney. The Pfizer CEO, when they admitted that the vaccine, he said, doesn't work very well, if at all. And then he hastened to add, he said, but the booster will work. And I go, no, it won't. You know it won't. So we got taken. And what did they do? They've doubled down. So there's nothing that will stop these guys short of You know, who knows? So, you know, pharma, for example, is 75% of the revenues of the mass media. You think we're ever going to bring down pharma? I consulted for so many pharmaceutical companies, you can't count them. I was on Merck's five-scientist long-range steering committee. I've seen under the skirt of pharma. I never saw the corruption, which is located precisely at the clinical trial stage. They fake them. They fake the clinical trials on a wholesale basis. Sometimes the drug works. They don't have to. But when they need it, they fake it. And there's companies that do the clinical trials and they come back, you go, you're going to get another gig out of Pfizer, you're going to have to come up with good numbers right? So kind of like bond rating agencies, right? That didn't work either. NIAID, Fauci's operation is 75% funded by pharma. There's kickbacks. There's so many awful things happening in there. Um, there's drugs being cleared that have no demonstrated efficacy and they're still getting cleared now. That didn't used to happen. So the propaganda problem is severe. This year, I'm going to write about Ukraine. One could call it steel manning the Putin case, but the problem is I don't think it's steel manning if you believe it. So I believe that Putin... Uh, Of course, he's a tough guy. And of course, he's a he's I'm sure he's whacked a lot of people. He's, you know, but Justin Trudeau is not going to run Russia. Right. This is not a country. You know, I've seen Russian videos and dash cam videos and drunk Russians walk around the street. This is a tough place to run. And I would argue that under Putin's regime, it has been pretty quiet. And there's border wars, things like that. Crimea, people go, oh, what about Crimea? And I go, that occurred right after we toppled the Ukrainian government and installed our guy. So I I sincerely believe that this war has been caused by NATO. NATO wants it. They wanted to trigger it. It is NATO's fault. And I think Putin played the hand the best he could. I don't think he wanted the war. I think he needed Ukraine to stay neutral. NATO would have nothing of it. NATO did not did not negotiate sincerely. And this isn't just this year. You want to learn about NATO. You go back pre-2022 where the propaganda is not so bad. And you find all sorts of things about what was going on in Ukraine. You find out it's the most corrupt country in the world. You find out that there's legitimate, not neo-Nazis, just Nazis. Post-war leftover Nazis who are like Mexican drug cartels who are really running Ukraine because they have the numbers, they have the ruthlessness. And so the propaganda, John Pilger, one of the legends of British journalism, said this is the most propaganda slathered war he's ever seen.
1: And when you hear the word propaganda, I mean, you really, you think about reading about it in a history book, oh yeah, that used to happen in World War II. And I think that's one of the reasons why podcasts are so important and so popular is because people want to get to the truth. And these longer form type of conversations, we can start to say, well, wait a minute, let me question my beliefs. And you may have triggered many of the listeners to say, well, wait a minute, you know, I can't believe he would say something so offensive. I'm sure I have. However, but the critical thinker, would say, well, what if what he's saying is true? Let me look into this a bit further. Accept
0: it and ask. One of the reasons I do it, by the way, people sort of ask, and I, I throw out these bombs, right? As you saw in New Orleans, I defended price gouging, right? I throw out these bombs, which is really a small part of the talk. I throw out these bombs. I'm a climate change denier. I, it could be changing. But 98% of the climate change story is, is a serious load of crap. It's 150 $150 trillion grift. You bring me $150 trillion to spend on a topic, I guarantee you I can find a whole lot of people to sign off on it to get their share of that pie. And so I dug into climate change, being a believer, and found just pathological lying right away. It took me only a matter of about 20 or 30 hours to to start really hitting the big lies. And there are famous physicists around the world who've come out and said, look, this is not true, we're being told. These are not meatballs. These are the, the head of the American Physical Society's committee that looked into climate change, which include legends like Freeman Dyson and former presidential advisor Steve Conan, and they came out. And that committee, by the way, they're all deniers. The committee who looked at it all came out of it saying, this is crap. It's not just that it's a lie, but there's just a lot of crappy science. There's a lot of risk where you go, look, I'm paid a million dollars a year by DOE to study this. I'll study it. Right. Academics will go go for the purse real fast. It's a Jay Giles line. And uh, the climate change story is a great case of propaganda because it's, the, it's a grift. Everyone is getting paid by it, is happy to say climate change is a problem. Every journalist who wants to get an article published and get clicks is happy to put a climate change theme to it. But I believe now, why do I throw that out there? There'll be people who are appalled. Now I'm a resource depletion guy. I think it's a huge problem. I'm an environmentalist guy. I think I'm an anti-plastics guy. You know, but the pro- my wife always says, well, you know, but the climate change effort will solve those. I go, no, they won't. Because if you really want to solve, for example, pollution. One of the important solutions is natural gas and nukes. And the climate change guys want nothing to do with that. And, and so that you can see the hypocrisy right there. So I throw the truth bombs out there, whether right or wrong, hoping that as the people say, oh, my God, I can't believe they said that. And then they read some article and they go, oh, oh there it is. There it is again, right? I just want there's a name for it, something the something Meyerhoff effect where I call it the green van effect, where you buy a green van and then you notice how many green vans are on the road. It, your, your brain is primed. And so people who hear the preposterous things that I say will start to notice that what they're being told. So my wife has had this slow awakening where at first she thought I was just nuts. And now sometimes she sort of slides back and I go, but what about this? She goes, yeah, you're right.
1: I think at the end of the day, it's critical for human beings to get to the truth and understand the truth and that today's world, again, smoke and mirrors everywhere, everywhere you the look. Censorship. Yes. The
0: censorship oppressive censorship. And here's a great example of where the, you know, when Bilbo goes to hand Frodo the ring and as Frodo starts to take it, Bilbo's eyes go, (laughs) looks really creepy, right? Once in a while, you see that. It's what the, actually the guy named the phrase deep state, Peter Dale Scott, talks about sort of the negative imprint there, where you, you, once in a while, the system sort of flashes open and shows you something. And the trucker story was a good example. So the trucker was the most benign, heartfelt, heartwarming protest in history, right? These guys were up there and these, these hockey moms and dads, and they were having a grand old time. They were not happy with what they were doing, but they were cleaning the streets. There was no violence. There was no beatings. There was no nothing, no fires, no anything. And then when it was time to deal with them... Victoria Freeland, second in command of Canada. Grandfather was a Goebbels buddy Nazi. Her ties to Ukraine are ridiculous, and she's in the queue to become secretary of NATO. This is a plot thickening moment. This is a Whitney Webb moment. She stepped on them with everything she had. They shut down their bank accounts. They shut down accounts of people who donated to them. They shut down accounts of people who brought them donuts for free out in the street. They brought in the Nazis the authoritarianism. And I think they were actually Nazis. I think Freeland's a Nazi. That's not a metaphorical Nazi. She is Azoth battalion tied Nazi. And they showed what the ruthlessness of the state could be when they need to. And, And the question is why? And the answer is because there's truckers in every country and the truckers were showing the power they had if they just got together. They all have shortwave, you know, they have their CBs, they talk to each other. The truckers were a scary, scary group of deplorables.
1: And ultimately, again, I think it comes down to getting to the truth. And when you recognize like that example, you see that there are forces that were trying to suppress that type of movement and they were pretty successful. And, it, you know, in some ways, it's very, you know, scary and, and alarming for many people. But I think ultimately it comes down to getting to the truth, what is actually being done right now what forces are against you or what other sort of undercurrents are at play here rather than what you see at surface level so i think getting to the truth it's like well how how can people do that better how can they get a more accurate frame of the world and what tactics i mean you talked about reading books and some specifics in terms of those books that helped you gain more perspective on propaganda and so forth but is there anything else that you might point to
0: well over time and I, years and years ago let me finish the truck, Why why didn't canada just say okay you don't have to get the vaccine, right? That would have been an easy solution. The answer is because they couldn't afford to give them the win,
1: right? Because if you give them an inch, you give them a mile, that's type like a, of deal.
0: That's like a standoff between you and your teenage daughter or son. You go, now, unfortunately, I got to draw the line here. This is kind
1: of a got to put in the Maginot line. They'll get around it. That reminds me of uh, Novak Djokovic as well. Um, and I know he's still going through this and not to get on that topic, but I think it's it is another example. It's like we can't let this example be shown. Right. Right.
0: So so the, what you do is you find the people who appear to be trying to get it right. And you also find what the other day I thought of is I call them puzzle piece connectors. And that's where Whitney Webb is the perfect example. So Whitney Webb is this woman who digs into the dark side of geopolitics. And someone was critical of her the other day. And they said, she doesn't have the big picture. And I said, I don't think that's what she tries to do. So if you're trying to say, why did Russia attack Ukraine? You may never get there. Or are you trying to say, why are there mass shootings in the country? I guarantee you, I can make a pretty good case that the mass shootings are something definitely screwed up with them.
1: Yeah, you were, you were putting and, and some very intriguing uh, truth comments. Truth bombs out
0: there. Yeah, truth <laughs> bombs out there. By the way, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. I just finished a book on Manson. And the guy is compelling, and it turns out it connects up, Manson connects up with the MK Ultra program, which was the CIA's drug brainwashing program, which I used to think was probably true, but I wasn't sure. Uh, no, it turns out it was headline news, so, so it was true. And he actually is able to connect a common CIA agent with Manson's killings and with Jack Ruby killing Oswald. It's an unbelievable story. And the CIA has been up to no good the whole way. I mean, they're a bunch of psychopaths. So I find people I think are trying to get it right. Whitney Webb is a puzzle piece connector. So Whitney will say, remember the judge who got, whose husband and son got shot by a FedEx guy? It was about three years ago. The judge's family opens the door and boom, boom, he puts two bullets in him, one died, one didn't. You find out that the judge had taken on a Deutsche Bank case that involved Epstein problems, And then you find out that the guy who shot him went home and committed suicide. Oh, how convenient. And then you find out that he used to work for Kroll Associates, which is one of these private companies that does uh, Intel. And all of a sudden you go, "Okay, here's the deal. I can't explain it. But those puzzle pieces fit together to produce a fraction of a picture. And I can tell you why the mass shootings in the country. I can piece this together to say, here are problems. One of which, for example, reported by CBS News. Was it a five of the made five of the major shooters? Their hard drives were missing. I don't need any more information than that to start getting the creeps, right? So I actually, this Manson book convinced me it's possible that all the shooters, Uvalde, you name it, are experiments in which these are the, the holy grail of the CIA was to be able to brainwash a person to get them to do stuff and not even remembering why they did it. They don't even remember the event, and that was Ruby. It turns out. I never understood Ruby. Why did we learn? Ruby could not remember shooting Oswald. And he was psychotic by the time they got to him. And so you're going, oh, my God. So the I might have achieved that. So the shootings could really be just, oh, let's try that again. They're always drug-addled kids. There's a common theme to them. And you really want to go down that rabbit hole. You will come out completely convinced of the story if you watch I wrote about 20 pages on a Las Vegas shooting. That's not a story with, with a structure in which pieces don't quite fit. That's a story where nothing fits. Hey Dave, That's a story where there isn't even a superstructure.
1: Why is it important for investors to go down these type of rabbit holes?
0: It's not. This is just an obsession. Um, <laughs> okay. But it is important to recognize that if they can lie about these other various things, for example, I think this FTX collapse could really, really cause trouble. Besides the crypto world, I mean, it, this could be the trigger that causes trouble. So you, you kind of got to pay attention to that if they're lying. I was on a podcast the other day where the guy said, Powell is raising rates to put a bat on Europe. And I'm go, this guy has a totally different worldview. But it's one I put in the back of my head and go, OK, now the, the green van effect will kick in and I'll start to say, oh, there's a that piece fits. Look at that. And that's why I try to put it together, because sometimes the investigators don't even realize they're investigating the same entity because they're not talking to each other.
1: It's, it's essentially the scientific method. It's it's a hypothesis right. in testing that hypothesis. Hey, guys, I want to remind you to check out CF Capital. CF Capital is the premier boutique real estate investment firm in the Midwest and Southeast region of the United States. We are are a national real estate investment firm with a purpose. We provide property investment and asset management solutions to help passive investors maximize returns on high value multifamily communities. But our investments go far beyond acquisitions. We invest in people. We are in the business of elevating communities and raising the bar for everyone within our ecosystem. CF Capital is a real estate investment firm focused on the acquisition and operation of multifamily assets. We confidently deliver tax advantage, stable cash flow and capital appreciation with a margin of safety. By investing alongside our team, investors can preserve and grow their wealth without having to deal with tenants, termites, or toilets. Investors come and stay for the outsized returns we create in our deals while appreciating the ancillary opportunity to make a bigger impact that only CF Capital can provide. If you're an investor and want to invest with us, here's how. Learn more about CF Capital at cfcapllc.com or by simply clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. We will see you on the inside of this powerful community. So let's elevate communities together. Talk to me about the upside of the next 10 to 15 years. I mean, if we're talking about 10 to 15 years of pain, there could be tremendous upside as well if you know where to look as an investor. I mean, any thoughts there?
0: Well, from Robert Gordon's book, which I've already praised, it turns out that if you look at inventions, primary inventions are things like indoor plumbing, electricity, you name it, the, the real big ones, discovery of how to make steel. The secondary inventions are the things you get after that, appliances. and You, you invent the internet primary, next thing you know, you, you're now digitally connecting various things in the world, at some level secondary. The digital world is not as wealth creating as people think. It's generated a lot of wealth for individuals, but the actual gain, the internet went away, I'd probably be happier. And uh, the best decade for secondary inventions was the 1930s. Uh, number one, that's when they invented really cool stuff under the cloud of the Great Depression.
1: So be creative, be innovative, right? That's protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And how do and you? By do that? the way,
0: well, when I was a kid, my dad was a great street level economist. He had a construction company of three hundred and fifty people. He ran it. He designed their pension program. He sort of was first hands on figuring out the healthcare problems, you know, things like that, dealing with other contractors. So we had great dinner conversations. One day we were chatting and I said to him, triggered by something, I said, so if you bought real estate in the Great Depression, you could get rich. And he said, yes. Now, this is a pretty good insight for a 15-year-old or whatever I was. And that stuck, right? That's one of those conversations that followed me my whole life. And and then as I started studying markets, I realized you have to have money. at the. So his response to me was, yes, but... No one had any money. So I realized you have to have money at the bottom. And then I realized you have to therefore have money at the top. And then I realized you can't ride those assets all the way down to the bottom because you won't have the buying capabilities unless you happen to be BlackRock and you can take huge swaths of free money and buy shit. Right. But otherwise, the the common man, the forgotten man, cannot buy the bottom because the trip down burnt them so badly. So you have got to get out. And the getting out part for me was what caused the decade of mediocrity of the of the teens. Because by historical metrics, the 0809 correction had, was by no means finished. What was not anywhere in the history books was 30 trillion dollars of of support. And I don't know anyone who predicted it. I know people claim they did because they said they'll do anything they have to. I go, you didn't say 30 trillion, dude, right? $30 billion to bear a spare insurance was a good example, anything you have to, which was breathtaking at the time. Now it seems trivial. And so somehow you have to show this great patience to not grab every last penny, to invest using absolute metrics. So for example, I did buy some equities in 2020. These are companies with, let's use my least favorite indicator, PE, with PE single digits, cash on the balance sheet dividends between 5 and 10%. I don't know why they're sitting out there. I might be getting duped. I started buying energy, and I've got a tweet showing it. I've got a tweet from that moment where Howard Lindzen says, what's your single best idea right now? It was back in 2020. And and I said, ExxonMobil. And some guy sent me that tweet and said, you made me a lot of money from that tweet. So I, if that was a big secular bottom, I called it. Now, I didn't size it. I don't do a Stan Druckenmiller all in 200% blah, blah, blah. I edge in because I just don't trust myself to be right.
1: So how are you positioning your portfolio to to consider that five to six years of froth is potentially going to be burning off and then perhaps we're going to hit the bottom at some point within this 10 to 15 years so that you are positioned to take advantage of those opportunities?
0: Well, first and foremost, you got to realize that a cheap asset can become half as cheap. As Einhorn said, I was at a dinner one time in like January with a bunch of hedge fund founders. I was the only guy who didn't have a hedge fund. I might have been the only guy at the table who wasn't a billionaire. There were sports team owners there. and about eight of us. Einhorn got mad which is rare, at a tech bowl. He's just sitting there listening to this guy spout off about profit margins, says, He says, you have no idea what it's like to ride a position down 95%. And he says, you know what a 95% correction is? He says, a 95% correction is a 90% correction that then gets cut in half. And, and that's true. And so if you think it's going to go down 50 and you buy it and it goes down 80, you just lost all your money. You do the math on that. You got clobbered. Don't so catch you a really, falling knife. Michael Barry has a great statement. He said, your default setting on any investment should be, look, if it doesn't work, I can just hold it. So if you buy Rio Tinto, which is spewing out cash, has mines all over the world, and no matter what goes forward, it kind of looks like a world that's going to use commodities because we're going to be trying to make solar panels, whether they really work, and windmills, whether they really work, and electric cars, whether we can really use them. And we're gonna we got an energy crisis, and so we're gonna start trying to figure out ways to solve that. So the commodities looks like a potential multi-decade run to me because they, they are at the peak of of the commodities like the energy in 16, I think it was energy was 16% of the S and P in 2020 when I started buying it, they booted Exxon out of the Dow. I go, oh, that's a bottom call. They replaced it with Salesforce.com which I had to look up to see what they did. And then Jesse Felder says the S&P was 16% energy in 2016. It's now 2%. That's a bottom call. When the industry that runs the entire globe is 2% of the S&P, that's a good idea. I bought tobacco right before they lost that 140-something million dollar billion-dollar lawsuit. And I'm going, what am I missing? What am I missing? I can't figure out why. It's PE ratio of six, dividend yields of 12. What am I missing? They're about to lose the lawsuit. They go bankrupt. They're not going to pay it off. So they can't let them go bankrupt. And then I read this three or four paragraph article that said, if they lose the lawsuit, they'll have to raise cigarettes 50 cents a pack and pay it off over the next 20 years. I go, it's a tax. It's a tax. And I bought a bunch and put a couple of kids through college.
1: Well, nobody can predict the future, but you can certainly read the tea leaves and make predictions. Well, can buy are-
0: cheap, right? If someone offers you a brand new Toyota Camry for 20000 you might not know how you're going to sell it, but your worst case scenario is you drive it.
1: And you know the the strategy of just be prepared to hold, and I think that's super right. relevant for real estate investors. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that for Facebook, right?
0: I think real estate, though. I, there are a lot of real estate guys in New Orleans. I, did you see those two kids?
1: I did, man. It was like, are, are you are kidding they legit? Me? Are they legit? I don't know. I, I was thinking the same thing
0: for the, for the listeners. There's a kid who's 12 and 15, whose father said, "I did not bankroll them. They mowed lawns. They did this. They did that." And then I talking to the kids, the older one's worth 1.6 million. The younger one's worth 600,000. And I'm going, oh, there's something wrong with this story.
1: I mean, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt to say, you know what? You can be creative and you find a seller who's got a motivation and you're but kind you of working get a- it.
0: You can't even go to a bank at that age. So there's just something.
1: They're getting maybe seller financing, but what kind of seller is doing the financing for a 14-year-old? Who knows? I mean, anything is possible. It was an amazing,
0: (laughs) I know, I know. And I talked, I said, first and foremost, don't bother to go to college. Don't waste your time. More (laughs) important than the money is don't waste your time.
1: Coming from a Cornell, you know, you're printing too much money.
0: (laughs) You're printing too much money. Who is it? Someone told a story about a guy who sat in the back of a class. He was teaching famous guy. was teaching his adjunct course at a school. The guy sat in the back and said nothing. And then the last day class, I mean, he raised his hand and and the the teachers, thinking, oh, Here it comes. This is going to be a doozy. The kid says, I'm running a company out of my dorm. I've got a 1.5 million cash flow. And I've got a girlfriend who's kind of nagging me, saying I don't spend enough time with her. I don't take time to visit with her family. And he said, get rid of her. Just get rid of her. There's more girlfriends. You will not find companies like that very easily. Get rid of her. And so so I think you have to be patient. I really do think if you wouldn't hold it just for the... So Einhorn did a, an interesting interview the other day, and I couldn't tell whether he's being sort of facetious. It was a Bloomberg interview. And he said, you know, there are companies out there you can buy with PEs of five and huge cash flows. The age of value investing is dead. There's no one wants to buy those. But I also know he's smart enough to realize that if you just buy those and own them Buffett style, that's a great buy. Who cares what happens to the price if that company is putting out 20% a year?
1: Get back to the you fundamentals. Will.
0: You will be paid. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm not going to buy real estate now because I think BlackRock at some point soon is going to start liquidating their portfolios. Was does it start? Who's the very, very, very something Sternlich. or other? Stern like yeah, I think his stuff. and think uh, Zell is totally down on real estate now. So I think real estate is going to have its problems, but at least it's a productive cash flow asset. But I do think there's going to be some unleveraging in that world.
1: Yeah. If you don't have a market advantage, it can be a very challenging time. And I, I believe it is a very challenging time. But for folks who are professional, have been in the business for decades, I mean, obviously there can know be what they're doing. tremendous opportunity. But at the end of the day, like you said, it, it is about getting back to the fundamentals because all this irrational exuberance that's been uh, a, just a function of the marketplace to such a high regard, I think is, is finally getting washed out. And hopefully we'll see more of that get washed out. But, but Dave, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I want to transition uh, this conversation just a bit and uh, just kind of wrap up with our rapid fire section of the podcast. We call it the Rare Rare Air Questionnaire. Uh, It is all about being uncommon. I think your perspective is tremendously uncommon, unfortunately, but I'm excited that we're able to kind of spread that message a bit further so that people can question what they are seeing uh, across the landscape, whether it's politics, whether it's news, history, economics, and how they're reading things and how they're getting to truth. Uh, Actually, a few questions here for you just quickly. Uh, You've You've already mentioned a handful of books. Obviously you're a huge reader, which is something that I think is a clue. Audio books for the audiobooks. Uh, audiobooks. Two to three, what are two or three of the most impactful books you've read over the past few years? I know you've already mentioned uh, a few.
0: I did mention a few. And you oh, mentioned that's a tricky
1: one. Audiobooks is that's how you read so much? Uh, is that audio
0: Yeah. Because just commuting to work, which is a 12 minute drive each way, if you do the math, I can do a dozen books. When my wife asks me to go to the store, she's not actually asking me to go to the store. She's asking me to read for 10 minutes. I love that. And so she I don't think she understands why when she says, Would you go do this? I'm happy to do it. You're like, I'm I get out. To get, let's do it. <laughs> I, I'm out, let's do it. And I turn it on, and next time I'm finding out is Jack Ruby was was a drug addled CIA pawn, mm-hmm. right? I having a ball. So um every year I write a year in review, which I'll I'm not saying it to plug it, but the last chapter is a list of books and I critique the books I've read. And so if I, I guess I could put together uh, a document that has 12 years of book critiques. I try to pick them carefully. Thoreau said, you know, read the good ones because you don't have time to read them all. Right. And so the Manson book I wouldn't have read. It's too quirky sounding. Charles Manson, CIA. Why would I read that? Although I love conspiracy theories because I believe men and women of wealth and power conspire. And as a, a viral tweet. I said, look, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I think men and women of wealth and power conspire. I said, if you don't, you're what is referred to as an idiot. I said, and if you do, but you won't say anything, yours would refer to as a coward. So I think we should all be conspiracy theorists. We should wear it as a badge of honor because it's a way to shut down free speech by using that term pejoratively. And when someone calls me a conspiracy theorist, I said, yeah, you're an asshole. I am, and you're an asshole, right? I just have no tolerance for that. And I will stop conversation cold and challenge them and say, why did you just say that? Why do people have to say, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist? Of course you are. If you're about to say something, Offbeat. Eric is a conspiracy theorist, and um, by the way, the whole term was invented by the CIA in 1967 to shut down Kennedy assassination stories. There's a weird one. There's a bit of a paradox.
1: And maybe you could share with me that list uh, pro- after oh, the show. Oh, I'm happy to. And I'll put that and uh, put a link in the show notes. Pin,
0: My my pinned tweet is my year in review, and it's I write it every year. It's not trivial, so you have to, by definition, wait till the end of the year. And it's 319 printed pages, I'm told. Wow. And it's a try to write 319 printed pages at the end of the year. It's a religious experience.
1: Dave, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis?
0: Elevate my life? I, I've asked that question. Last year, I took up golf after 40 years. I played about a six handicap, so I was actually okay. And then last year, I took it up again, and I was playing about a 700 handicap. And But I was enjoying it. And then this year, I went out to practice and Everything kind of ached. And it really felt like I'd given it all back. And I didn't end up playing golf this summer. And I said, you should have toughed your way through that. I just, last year, I was a driven man. And I was getting, you know, lessons from PGA wannabes, guys who are, you know, mini tour, the micro tour helping me. And I did have good fundamentals. And so I was coming back, but I got to do that again. Next year, I got to get back in that saddle. My weight goes up and down right now. I'm on a bit of a high. So at some point, I got to peel off the comorbidities. That elevates me. I just like reading stuff all the time. I like putting together these puzzles. And I'm not sure that makes me happier, though. That's the problem. I'm not sure it makes me a better person.
1: I'm well, you, just, you certainly have this insatiable curiosity to know the truth and to get to the truth. Uh, and so I appreciate that. But what's the biggest way that you so elevate? H-
0: Howard Cosell was interviewed when he was dying of cancer. And I like life maxims, by the way, life hacks. And, and they asked him about his career, which was legendary. And he said, it all seems so stupid. And I said to myself, I never want to be there. I never want to find myself. Ben Shapiro the other day said that you never want to have your tombstone say showed great potential. And so when I make decisions, I ask if this decision goes very bad, will I forgive myself? And If the answer is no, I don't do it. That applies to every big
1: one. That's super helpful. Thank you for that nugget there. And um, what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you?
0: Uh, I try to be moral. I have lots of these podcasts. So, you know, in some sense, to the extent that I'm educating. In fall of 2023, I think I'm going to teach a freshman writing seminar. There's going outside the box called Personal Finance and Other Life Hacks. I want to get to the freshmen in their fall semester. And I'm supposed to teach them how to write. And I'm a pretty enthusiastic writer, an editor, and I have tricks and stuff like that. But I also want to get to them before they've dropped their you know, $300,000 and say, here's what adulthood it will deliver. Here's how much it costs to own a car. You know, that sort of thing, things that they're just, they didn't think about, but there's so many potential topics, the importance of saving, right? The more you save, the less you spend, the smaller your footprint, the richer you'll be, you know, that sort of thing.
1: What a tremendous opportunity for those freshmen uh, that they have no idea. Well, what I could, get, can, I
0: could, I could end up getting canceled. I mean, I've been canceled before and I could, I, I could end up in the Dean's office because some freshmen didn't like what I said.
1: For sure, man. Well, you know, I, I want to acknowledge you for being bold and in the face of cancel culture, continuing to speak your mind, uh, continuing to spread truth, continuing to question what, you know, everyone just accepts as conventional wisdom. So i just. Appreciate you so much. I appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast, Dave. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation before we part ways today?
0: Yeah, if their lips are moving, they're lying. That's my default setting. And someone has to win my trust. And so the answer to the question is, I figure out who's trying to get it right. When their lips are moving, they're not lying. But it's it's getting so pervasive. So just uh, parting words are just don't believe the narrative. Nothing on mainstream press. There's only one journalist on mainstream media that I really like, and I used to hate him. I hated him, Um, and that's Tucker Carlson. It's not that he's always right, but he's trying to get it right. I like Bill Maher. Bill Maher's the opposite, but Bill Maher can cross over the center line repeatedly, and and so I like I like Joe Rogan. I like guys like that for the same reason you say Rogan will touch the third rail
1: people can tell man they they have this alignment with people who are really seeking the truth and there's almost this misalignment when you know it's like you can feel it in your gut uh that people are or are not being uh genuine and uh well, they lie to you that's right
0: so famous quote i'm not disappointed you lied to me i'm disappointed i could no longer believe you
1: Boom. Good stuff. Dave, Column. Tell the listeners where they can find you. It sounds like uh, is Twitter the best place or where else can they find you?
0: Twitter's probably the best place. I I get emails. I get phone calls. (laughs) People seem shocked that I actually entertain them. But through the last 20 or 30 years, there's very famous people, you know, and and this year's write up. I I provide a narrative of a three way discussion I had with Stephen Roach and Larry Summers. Right. They're taking the time to listen to me. Um, Larry Summers read my annual write up. That's a reach when you get Larry to read it. He said, you do not have a filter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, you do not. Uh, Yeah, I know that from personal experience. Well, Dave, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes as where the listeners can find you at David B. Column on Twitter. Um, Thank you again so much for being on the show today. And we'll look forward to part two. Okay, sounds good. Elevate Nation. Dave Column bringing massive value. I guess today's episode is really all about finding truth. It's about getting to the bottom of truth. It's about questioning conventional thinking. It's about questioning data or the presentation of information in all aspects and presenting your own hypothesis for finding what is the real truth. And I think that that is a critical centerpiece to creating value and to optimizing Your investment portfolio, uh, because if you don't have truth, then you're surprised when the rug is pulled out from under you. And there's a lot of rugs right now. There's a lot of rugs that can be pulled out from under you if you're not careful. So I wanna encourage you to re listen to this show. There's tremendous, tremendous value in this conversation. Even if you felt, by the way, if you felt triggered or offended then maybe question where that came from and open your mind to an alternative way of thinking because that is a superpower. It is a superpower to recognize that perhaps you have been engineered by the media, by institutions, by public figures, so on and so forth. It is possible that that is manifest or has manifested within your perspective, within your mindset. Today's episode is about questioning those thought processes and rewiring your brain. And by the way, expanding your brain to consider what else could be true and how does that impact your decision-making? How does that impact your portfolio? And so I just hope that you found tremendous value in this episode and being exposed to a guy like Dave Collum. And uh, I wanna encourage you to re-listen to the show and discuss with a friend, what was it that you took away? What are your top one, two, or three takeaways? It could have been specific tactics, it could have been specific advice, specific perspectives that he shared, or it could have been things that you read between the lines. What did Dave not say or what was Dave actually saying from a high level that is causing you to consider a different line of thinking? How does that impact your goals? How does that impact how you see the economy unfolding over the next year, 10 to 15 years and the long term horizon of your portfolio? I just think this can be a game changer and I appreciate you showing up. If you are listening all the way to now, then you are the type of person who has what it takes to question conventional wisdom and question everything, frankly, because if you want to go where you want to go, there are unseen or hidden predators or villains that are trying to steal your dreams. And you may not be aware of them, but I think today's episode really shined the light on those. And so I just want to thank Dave again for being on the show. I want to thank you for listening. Elevate Nation until next time. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate.